Music has been a major part of Earth Day protests and celebrations since the very first one on April 22, 1970. Here's a clip of a CBS News special from Philadelphia on that day. Fairmount Park in Philadelphia today is much like a rock music festival as a teach-in on the environment. New York City held a huge Earth Day event in Union Square on the first Earth Day. Legendary folk musician Pete Seeger spoke and performed. He drew in a big crowd of both activists and fans. I'm Courtney Bergseeker with WFUV News, and this is Disharmony, how music is responding to climate change. In previous episodes of Disharmony, we've talked about how music can be a medium for climate action. In this special Earth Day episode, we'll hear from three artists who use music to advocate for the Earth in different ways. We'll talk to musician and politician John Hall about his music and the anti-nuclear energy movement. We'll hear from jazz artist Paul Winter about how sounds of wildlife inspire him. Lastly, we'll talk to Sean Carey about how an appreciation for nature has driven his songwriting. You might know John Hall as a founder for the band Orleans, or maybe as a former New York congressman. Hall is a musician, songwriter, politician, environmentalist, and community activist. He became interested in the anti-nuclear energy movement in the 70s, and he co-founded the group Musicians United for Safe Energy with Jackson Brown, Bonnie Raitt, and Graham Nash. Hall's song called Power, which calls for renewable energy instead of nuclear energy, became the anthem for the group, and a longtime anthem for the environmental movement. Folk band Peter, Paul, and Mary performed Power at Washington, D.C.'s Earth Day event in 2000. Everybody needs some power, I'm told, to shield them from the darkness and the cold. Some may see a way to take control. How did you become interested in the anti-nuclear energy movement? Uh, we were living in uh, the Woodstock, New York area, and so town of Saugerties, just, just a little bit east of Woodstock. And... Um, the Power Authority of New York decided they wanted to put in a nuclear plant in a town called Cementon, an old, depressed, dusty town on the west bank of the Hudson River. I went to the hearings. My next door neighbor got me interested and got me going to them. And this was back when you could smoke in meetings. And so these commissioners were sitting with their wingtip shoes, uh, sometimes up on the table, um, smoking cigars or pipes. And uh, I was one of hundreds of people who came to the public comment. I remember there were a lot of comments about the waste, about uh, the, the danger of accidents, the danger of terrorism, um, because these plants are widely known to have been targeted by terrorists, uh, the dangers of uh, shipping uh, radioactive material, especially spent fuel, which is you know, highly radioactive waste. At any rate, that night that I came back um, from, uh, from that hearing, I couldn't sleep. It was obvious to me that they had decided they were going to build it no matter what anybody said. That night after the hearing, I couldn't sleep. And I got up. Johanna was asleep. Our daughter, Sophie, was asleep. I crept downstairs with um, my guitar and a little tape recorder and sang, Just give me the warm power of the sun. Give me the steady flow of the waterfall, the whole chorus to power, the restless power of the wind, you know, alternative renewable sources of power. I sang that into my tape recorder, and then I could go to sleep. Uh, the song Power got debuted at the Seabrook nuclear plant in um, New Hampshire. 
at, it wasn't built yet, but got, was the site there. And Pete Seeger and Jackson Brown and I were singing and playing kind of the folkies in the round and um, guard dogs and helicopters buggy, buzzing us and a lot of chain link fence. But we sang the chorus to power about 25 times. There was no verse yet to sing. Tell me about the Musicians United for Safe Energy concerts in 1979. I wound up doing a benefit for the Karen Silkwood Fund. I think it was Jackson and Bonnie Raid and um, James Taylor, uh, Jesse Cohen Young. At the Palladium, I believe it was in New York. Uh, sold out show. Great. It was a wonderful show. It was just, uh, you know, we're all friends as well as working really well musically together. And, and so when we were done and we'd raised a serious amount of money for the Karen Silkwood Fund. So people were saying, now what? And um, I said, well, why don't we get everybody we know and go to Madison Square Garden? And have a, it's kind of like, I know how we'll save the school. We'll put on a show. So um, that was the genesis of that. And we started out to have one show and everybody was assigned somebody to talk to. You know, we we're all asking our friends to join us on the show. And uh, so we wound up selling out the first night then having five sold out shows and the rally at Battery Park with a quarter of a million people. It was uh, synergistic energy and, and um, snowball of the whole idea. Tell me about your writing process when you want to write a song about an issue. Most recently, the, my new album, the uh, Reclaiming My Time CD, uh, came out last May, uh, 2021. Uh, I had a song called World on Fire that was, uh, it's a reggae song, but it's, uh, it started out being my friend, John Paul Daniel, who I was writing with, wanted it to be a song about personal uh, growth and communication. And I said, we can't, this was during the Australian wildfires of, uh, of that year. Um, and before it was, I think, early tw January 2020, we started writing this. And I said, we can't write a song called World on Fire without talking about these wildfires. And so he said, all right, I know who I'm writing with. <laughs> I got a reputation for wanting to get explicit about things, but sometimes you have to say more of what you actually mean. And uh, so the song started out being about communication and wound up in the last verse being about not just the uh, Australian fires, but at that point, the uh, wildfire season in California had started and already gotten really bad. It was uh, talk about a thousand million creatures' lives destroyed. Talk about destruction is, you know, it's too much to grieve. You were a member of Congress for many years. What do you think a musician's place is in politics? I think a musician's place in politics is every bit as important as a lawyer's place. Uh, you know, there's uh, a preponderance of lawyers in politics, in Congress in particular, and there are exterminators and there are real estate agents. I knew a guy who got elected uh, uh, from Florida when I did, who had owned a series of car dealerships. 
there's no reason a musician or an artist of any time shouldn't be represented. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of reason they should be. Why those that are making these big decisions or small decisions for us as a country shouldn't represent every different viewpoint in every walk of life. Back in, um, I remember reading back in the, uh, during the Vietnam War days that, that local culture, indigenous culture in Vietnam uh, at, at one point uh, required that if you ran for mayor of a small town, you had to write a poem and recite it for the rest of the, of the townspeople and that they, they would vote for you know, their candidate for mayor based on the quality of the poem you wrote. I mean, it, that sounds maybe a little bit far-fetched, but it's better than you know, voting for the person who raised the most money from dark sources that he would then do favors for. Uh, we're, we're stuck on the opposite of the spectrum. That was musician and politician John Hall. He's still collaborating with other musicians to write about environmental issues. His latest album, Reclaiming My Time, features a song about protecting endangered species with Dar Williams called Save the Monarch. Like Hall's, jazz artist Paul Winter's music takes a bit of collaboration. But for Winter, it looks a little different. Paul Winter uses voices of different wildlife in his compositions. He's credited with creating a genre called earth music. He says the genre is more of an aspiration to embrace all of Earth's creatures. His jazz band, the Paul Winter Consort, has won four Grammys. They've also won many awards for bringing attention to endangered species. Winter says it all started with whale sounds. What inspired you to use sounds of nature in your compositions for the first time? I had heard about whale songs from some friends, and I, I couldn't imagine what they were talking about. And uh, But I've been always curious about any kinds of sounds. So I went to this lecture by a whale biologist named Dr. Roger Payne, and I was absolutely uh, astounded. Uh, hearing these extraordinary uh, vocalizations of the humpback whales, which uh, Roger Payne had recorded with underwater microphones in the Atlantic Ocean, um, the beauty of their voices, which uh, kind of uh, had sort of the poignance to me of, of blues, um, but, but the, the extraordinary range that they have, which goes off the top end of our hearing and off the bottom end, singing these long, complicated patterns that sometimes last 30 minutes or more, and then they repeat the same long pattern exactly verbatim uh, again and again and all the whales all the whales in that area of the sea will be singing that same song for that season you come back the next year and put your hydrophones in the water and they have a new song and they're all singing it so it was this double revelation that just astounded me uh that that they moved me musically I've often said it was sort of like the first time I heard Charlie Parker play saxophone. Um, moved me very deeply. And then the intelligence that they must have behind these songs and involved with their entire mode of living in the sea is extraordinary. 
In that same lecture, I also learned that whales were gradually being exterminated uh, for many, in many cases, products that can be found on land much more cheaply. They, I mean, using it for, for dog food and lipstick, etc. And it was absurd that that they that they were being uh, wiped out. And so I became an activist that night, uh, as well as uh, you know a great fan of of the whales. And I've often said that they opened for me the door to the entire symphony of to the greater symphony of the earth. Tell me about a memorable time when you were recording Sounds of Wildlife. That same, that same year, 1968, which was quite a, a, a banner year for me, um, I saw in the newspaper in my town, uh, living in a, a small town called Reading in Connecticut, um, an article that said that there was going to be a lecture at the middle school uh, about wolves. Uh, by a man named John Harris, who traveled, was traveling the country doing programs with two wolves. I had never seen a wolf. John um, came down the aisle of the auditorium in the school with these two wolves on leads and came up on stage and the wolves simply, they they didn't just sit there docilely like dogs. They They were... Curious, you could tell that there was a, a very sensitive intelligence at work there. When the program was over, I went out back to where uh, he was putting his wolves in in the van in which they traveled, and the the one wolf was looking out the back of the van. There was a kind of a half door there, and the wolf was looking out over that. And I stood there and I looked, and the wolf looked at me directly in the eyes, and I was so mesmerized by these these deep amber eyes that to me expressed not only his curiosity about me, but the wisdom of 30 million years of heritage, which is more than 100 times as long as the Homo sapiens, our, our species, has been around. So I had a sense then that there was maybe something very, very important for us as a much younger species to learn from the wolves. And I had my first chance to uh, explore that uh, a couple of years later, in my concerts, I had begun playing various pieces that incorporated the voices of different endangered species. And this led us to be invited to play at various um, wildlife events and benefit concerts. And I played at one in St. Louis. And at that conference, um, I met a biologist from uh, Minnesota named Fred Harrington, who was studying wolves up there, which was the the, 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 uh, the last few hundred wolves in the lower 48 states were at that time living in a narrow strip of habitat near the Canadian border. And um, he invited me to come up there and go howling with him. So I came there in that fall, and we would go out at night into the Superior National Forest, where he knew, uh, in an area where he knew the wolves uh, uh, frequented, and we would howl with our own voices. Um, and the first night we had no response at all, but it was a thrill for me just to imagine that the wolves were out there somewhere. Uh, and finally on uh, the next night, we, we heard 
response way off in the distance, a kind of lonely, uh, lazy-sounding voice began to rise into the night, and then before long, another joined in, and then you heard this whole chorus come forth. To my ear, was quite magnificent. Um, and they seemed to go on for a long time. And then it, it dawned on me that maybe they weren't just answering us, but that for them, this was a ritual that was very important in their life as a way of perhaps expressing their togetherness or announcing to a neighboring pack that this is their territory or simply expressing the joy at being alive. And I had the thought then that I wanted to make music about the feeling I had hearing them in the night because it was not a spine tingling kind of thing like you often read about associated with with people's encounters with wildlife, because I knew that the wolves were no threat to us. For me, it was a, a sense of a kind of deep peace inside, as if I had been through them connected to this this uh, larger family of life, of which we were once a more integral part. And so from that, I, I wanted to create um, a piece about the more gentle side of these creatures who were revered now as sort of the model parents of the animal world, the way they take care of their young, and um, as something alternative to the to the uh, brutal ways in which we have treated wolves over the years. So uh, that inspired um, a piece that I called Wolf Eyes, remembering that first experience looking into the eyes of that wolf that was named Jethro. listeners take away from your music? I'd love it if they had a bit of the inspiration that I had each time I've heard the, the, the voices of different creatures that, that, that now I find so many of them that are alluring. And that is that, that, we are, that they are part of our family or we are part of that, this larger family. Uh, and, and they're an integral part, and um, we we are perhaps the youngest of however many species there are. We don't know for sure, but say there's 20 million species on the earth. Homo sapiens are the youngest of all of them, and that's not a metaphor; it's a, it's a fact. And we've barely been here. Uh, maybe 300,000 years with the big brain that we, that we refer to in the name Homo, Homo sapiens sapiens. And we haven't begun to learn the basic principle of, of survival, which is to take care of our home. What I aspire to is to awaken in listeners a deeper sense of relatedness uh, to the larger community of life and with the earth and the, in the cosmos, um, and uh, if, if I may, I, I have a quote from one of my favorite composers, who's Charles Ives, that I'd like to read. Um, and Ives was the, is considered by many the greatest American composer. And Ives said, 
the future of music may not lie entirely with music itself, but rather in the way it makes itself a part with, in the way it encourages and extends, rather than limits, the aspirations and the ideals of the people, the finer things that humanity does and dreams of. That was jazz artist Paul Winter. Like Winter, musician Sean Carey has a deep appreciation for nature. He says it's guided some of his songwriting on his new album, Break Me Open. Carey's both a solo artist, S. Carey, and the drummer for the indie band Bon Iver. Bon Iver is part of the climate group Music Declares an Emergency, and many of their songs reflect on the climate crisis. Here's a clip of Carey's song called Desolate. We both knew before your personal experience with the climate crisis come through on your new record? I mean, this record, um, there's, there's a couple songs where, um, like the stress of climate change and climate crisis, um, were like the starting points of, of the songwriting process for me. Um, the record itself is kind of about a bunch of different things um has a lot to do with just like personal change and loss and going through divorce and losing my father but I thought you know why not add on the darkness of the uh our global situation um just pile that on there too um uh, but kidding aside um yeah I mean I I kind of use that as a as a jumping off point to write a couple of the songs and um because it it i mean it impacts everyone and it, it was impacting me as a creative person to do something about it i'm somebody that um like uses nature a lot as inspiration um, i love getting outside and doing various activities fly fishing and hiking and um just being outdoors has been has been a, another place where I kind of get inspiration for lyrics or, um, you know, have song ideas in my head that just sort of I can sort of meditate on those ideas when I'm out there. Um, so when it comes to um, what's going on with our climate, it's like it's hard. It's sort of like a distraction or like you know, I get out there and I'm, I'm trying to be uh, one with nature and be at peace, but um, sometimes that gets interrupted by the reality of, of what's happening. And um, so it's, it's sort of like coming from the same place, but just like a different angle, a different, like more of a, more of an anxiety than like, uh, a peaceful place, I guess. Tell me about a time when an experience with nature impacted your writing. Yeah, so the, you know, during the pandemic, um, uh, went through a divorce and um, lost my father and um, just had never gone through 
um, anything like, like that in my life. And so, um, it was, uh, it was rough. It was very, I felt like a different person, um, you know, just to go through that amount of change and loss and grief. And I mean, I'm still healing from it for sure. Um, but I, um, was out in Montana with a couple of my buddies and we were, um, working on my friend's cabin. Um, and we would sort of spend the, spend the morning and afternoon working on the cabin. And then in the late afternoon, evening, we'd go and fish. And, um, the last day we were there, we just, it was just one of those days where, um, everything just sort of aligned and uh the fishing was good and the sun was out and um yeah I just had this this moment of like it's gonna be okay I think from the start of of S. Carey like I've tried to use use those experiences as inspiration and then like kind of use use that in a lyrical sense to paint the picture. What do conversations sound like between you and other musicians about the climate crisis? You know, most artists that I interface with are my friends or I think we're all sort of feeling the same. We're a, a lot of us are on the same page and, um, you know, I'm sure you've talked about it on this podcast before, but it's like we're sort of I think we feel stuck sometimes because we have to travel a lot for work <laughs> and at the same time we're like you know trying to be advocates for for the climate crisis and um you sort of feel like a hypocrite um so i think you know there's just sort of like you can feel this collective like you know let's let's try to do what we can um in whatever way that is, you know, you just try to win little battles as you go, like trying to reduce trash on tour. Um, everyone has their huge water bottles that we use. And it's a really like, you can do these little things, but it is, it's a challenge. Um, I, I'm sure that people have done it way better than we have and that are, that get really hardcore about it. Um, but it's, you know, you're, you're in a different city every day. Um, you're you just feel sort of like you're just consuming consuming <laughs> consuming moving on to the next place and uh um that's hard but then you know the i think the music side of it is is the uh is the part where you sort of win back your integrity a little bit that was musician sean carey Music can be a medium for environmental advocacy. It has been for a long time, even on the very first Earth Day. Musicians Sean Carey, Paul Winter, and John Hall show how that can look really different from artist to artist. But it all comes down to care for the Earth. Happy Earth Day, and thanks for listening. Let us know what you think by tweeting at disharmony underscore WFUV. 
Special thanks to John Hall, Paul Winter, and Sean Carey for being part of the podcast, Rachel Liesendahl for contributing the cover art, and my dad, Joe Bergseeker, for contributing the music. I'm Courtney Bergseeker with WFUV News, and this is Disharmony, how music is responding to climate change.